My name is Andrew Kays, and I'm the pastor at Emmanuel Evangelical Lutheran Church of Paynes Point. That's in rural Oregon, Illinois. You're about to hear me preach. Now, this episode was recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, during which time public worship has been disrupted. We don't have it every Sunday. Therefore, all sermons have been recorded ahead of time to make them available online. Unless otherwise noted, all scripture is NRSV, used under the gratis policy of the copyright holder, the National Council of Churches. Our first reading this morning comes from the fourth chapter of Ephesians. So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands, so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up, as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from, all, from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Here ends the reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the sixth chapter. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Then the Judeans began to complain about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not complain among yourselves. No one can come to me unless drawn by the Father who sent me, and I will raise that person up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the gospel of our Lord. Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ. Let's start off this morning by once again hitting on some familiar beats where we're at, but we won't spend much time on it this time. We're in a series from Ephesians and a series from John 6. Here in the summertime, texts tend to get a little bit repetitive. Last week's readings are not terribly unlike this week's readings. We're in fact only halfway through five weeks of Jesus talking about himself as the bread of life 
here in John. And Ephesians, as the second reading in this season, the time after Pentecost, does not have to thematically connect each week, but it's kind of interesting how it does broadly anyway. It's a later letter meant to advise each congregation and all Christians on how to live in light of the gospel. In other words, it may not read so specific as like, because Jesus is the bread of life, da, 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 da. therefore you ought to speak the truth in love. But if we could encapsulate the whole of the gospel and its implications, both of those ideas would be included. So we don't have to find a direct connection between the two, but for fun this morning, let's consider how we might find an indirect one, zigging and zagging around that encapsulation. So we begin with the bread of life. I know we're on the third week. We had to get to it sooner or later. The bread of life. It's a metaphor. <laughs> Just like that. I'm only a couple sentences in to unpacking this, and I bet that strikes some of you as a little bit strange to say. We tend to think of metaphorical and literal as opposites, and many Christians would use the word literal to describe any given verse of the Bible or the Bible as a whole, not metaphorical. But metaphors aren't a bad thing, and in fact, Scripture is full of them. A metaphor is just a way of describing one thing by comparing it to something that it's not. Jesus wasn't literally a loaf of bread. It's not a piece of bread floating around teaching people, but he really is the bread of life. It's pretty easy to see how Jesus is not bread, so we can quickly move on to the other aspect of metaphors. How is he bread? Bread in that day and age was pretty important. This was before, you know, grain was heavily modified and what have you. So most grain, it's still true that most grain takes quite a bit of work to turn it into food, but it was kind of like all of it was back then. And it was a food source they had in abundance, it just happened to require a lot of work. Different context as well. They didn't have ovens as we do, but they could make unleavened bread by placing it on a stone or a metal plate over a open flame. And then they'd pour the dough over it. They'd have flat bread. By today's standards, just comparing contexts, that'd be a lot of work to get a paltry amount of some pretty boring food. Boring. <laughs> but context is everything. In that context, this is the difference between life and death. It was often the most consistent staple food source that they had, so they leaned on it out of necessity. Of course, there was other things they could eat, but to have society as they had it and have people be able to eat, it was required. That's the big one then. Bread sustains life for them in that context. Without it, they'd likely die. And there's more to the metaphor of how Bread, uh, you know, it starts as simple elements, then becomes something incredible. We've heard those connections before. It comes up in other texts and other topics. But today we're going to pause on life-sustaining because Jesus specifies it as such, the bread of life. Ordinary bread does its work. It sustains people's lives for a while. Eventually they die. Even manna, which God sent to the people of Moses, sustained those people's lives for a while, but eventually they too died. This time it's different. Like bread, it won't necessarily be glamorous. Right? It won't always be enjoyable even. Boring might not be the right word for a life in Christ, but it's certainly not always going to be uh, delectable. But it's going to do 
this bread of life, this life in Christ, is going to do what it sets out to do, what God's purpose for it is. This relationship with Christ will lead to life in a bigger, broader, eternal sense. Kind of like how bread does in its way during this life, the bread of life will for eternity. Jesus seems to put a condition then on this relationship, a condition on the gift of eternal life. That doesn't sound quite right. He says we've got to actually take the bread and eat of it. The metaphor becomes a little less clear at this point. What does eating that bread, which Jesus is, look like? Bound by my Lutheran lens, I read this in the most grace-filled way possible. For example, eating is simple, instinctual, and there isn't much thought to it. Certainly not a lot of confessions or beliefs. Without a second thought, a hungry child will pick up a piece of bread, consume it, and therefore sustain their life. And how can that come about? Because the child trusts the parent, because they depend on the parent to ensure what they have available to them, what they can reach out and eat, is safe and sustaining. If it's made available to you and you trust the one who's made it available, that's the end of the thinking process. That's what faith looks like. That's what a relationship with God in Christ looks like. It's about that trust rather than doing this or that or believing this or that. Likewise, God makes this gift of grace available to us, and it's just this simple, instinctual matter, of course. We take it, consume it, and are sustained. So, in other words, uh, while I think there are other preachers out there and other traditions who have the right to say, okay, well, that means you must eat the bread of life in order to be saved, and what must you do in order to be saved? That's going to be what it looks like to eat the bread. And then they'll answer that question the same way their tradition always does. For example, communion itself, that sort of bread, literally eating the bread, (laughs) that is Christ, would be an important point to hit on. It is in our tradition as well, but in others it would be the first thing mentioned. But, to be clear, there are no requirements on salvation. There are only proper responses to it. There are calls laid upon our hearts and over our lives that Jesus calls us to following the knowledge of salvation. It's not the same as a condition. It's in this fuzzy unpacking of what does it mean to eat the bread of life that we find that through line, that funny little zigzag through the encapsulation. And it takes a while, but we do get there to a reading like we have in Ephesians. Some might say that when the New Testament lays out a list of rules that are, by implication or maybe explicitly, for well, let's say the whole world or maybe the whole church or all Christians, some might say that such a broad set of commands is now the required list of what one must do in order to eat the bread and therefore obtain eternal life. And yet I will politely disagree with that sentiment. Instead, consider them a measure for your own introspection. Introspection is something Jesus calls us to over and over and over in the Gospels, so it stands to reason that the early church leaders would give us the set of tools to do that. Knowing that I am saved, I have consumed the bread of life, what has changed in me? Does this state of grace move me to follow Jesus' call? Do I, in light of my relationship with the divine, try to overcome the sinful bits of my humanity? Because here in Ephesians, we're being told don't be angry. Uh, Sort of. 
we are to be angry as long as it doesn't drive us to sin. God expresses anger throughout Scripture. Jesus was extremely angry, at least a time that comes to mind immediately uh, in his ministry. Anger isn't inherently sinful, but it sure seems to lead to some sins. We know what that's like. Being hurtful or vicious, doing lasting damage to a relationship over a temporary disagreement. And of course, anger leads some to assault others. In our human experience, God calls us to note, even utilize, proper sorts of anger, proper levels, proper consequences, but to reject and resist it when it becomes sinful. And then it says, don't let the sun set on your anger. And we have to ask a question again here. Is that metaphorical or literal? It's kind of both, right? In Jewish reckoning, the day begins at sundown. That's a bit different. I guess that kind of adds a layer of complexity, but sundown, sunup, those are transitions from one day into the next. So in both contexts, it's kind of like just don't carry your anger to the next day. Let it be in the past. And this is a tough one because there's no catharsis in anger, which means no amount of cursing out other drivers on the road will make you like them. (laughs) No amount of punching pillows will draw you closer to your friends and family. Expressing anger does not remove it, at least not expressing it like that. That's what no catharsis means. Instead, it has to be expressed by talking it through. But we can let it go in other ways, find ways to relax, pray on it. To live a holy life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, only appropriate anger will do, and that typically means if it can't be carried from day to day, much less week to week. That would be inappropriate. Now, uh, finally, our reading from Ephesians kind of wraps it up by using extensive lists, the do-nots and the do's, and and in short, it's, it's the do not be angry and spiteful stuff, and it is the do be kind and loving stuff. So finally, for us this morning, let's just consider expanding those lists, blowing it out across humanity. It doesn't necessarily have to be the whole world, maybe our country or our community, but just ask if we were all one way or the other, if people are spiteful and angry, or if people are kind and loving, which option sustains life? Yes, we'll all someday die. That is the reality. But Ephesians says to imitate God, to use God as the model. And God goes about creating, sustaining, and redeeming life. God values creation and wants it to stick around. God values human life, yours, others, and wants them to persist. So we should want them to persist as well. We are called to sustain life in this world because Christ first sustained our lives. Kind of like bread, but not the sort that only lasts a while, the sort that lasts forever. So in the here and now and into the here and after, we are called as Christians in eating and taking of this bread, sustaining our life, that we turn and sustain the life of the world, of our neighbors, friends and enemies alike. Amen. Thanks for listening. I pray God spoke to you in some way. A quick note at the end here, which you can skip if you've heard it before. The audio of my sermons does not always include proper citations. 
While I do some self-study and lean on my seminary education, I also lean on my colleagues with whom we have a regular text study. I also use Luther Seminary's Working Preacher website and their podcast, Sermon Brainwave. Some credit is due to at least one of those sources. Wherever you are, whenever you hear this, please be well. Take care of yourself and each other, and have a great rest of the week.